0: I'm Carrie Miller, and I appreciate you catching the podcast. This week, you'll hear my Big Books and Bold Ideas interview with Tamar Haspel. She and her husband left New York City for a sandy plot of land and a little house on Cape Cod. What they found there was the determination, the ingenuity, and the sheer stubbornness to raise much of what they eat. So in anticipation of that show, I'm bringing you an archive interview from April of 2020 with Rebecca Wynn, She's an exceptional artist and nature designer who found solace and strength in her garden just when she needed it. Here's Rebecca. I'm Carrie Miller, and this is NPR News. And on this Friday, I want you to step away with me just for a few minutes from the noise and the news and the grief that we're experiencing we're going to slip into Rebecca Wynne's garden with its green budding trees and sparkling morning veils of fragile spider webs, And those flowers that are emerging pinks and blues and lavenders. This is where Rebecca goes to be centered, to be grounded. She describes it like this in her new book. Feeling my feet on the earth, breathing floral-scented air... Noticing line and form, color and condition, changing minutely each time I went out, all lifted me from my emotional torment and brought me back to the present moment in connection with the garden. So I thought spending some time in Rebecca's garden at the end of another long week would be restorative and I hope you think so, too. Rebecca Wynn is a landscape designer and the creator of Whimsical Gardens. Her new book is titled 100 Daffodils, Finding Beauty, Grace and Meaning When Things Fall Apart. And she joins us from Dallas, Texas. And Rebecca, welcome. And I, I just have to say thank you for a lovely book at just the right time that you couldn't possibly have imagined. But here it is. So thank you.
1: Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really so happy to be um, able to share my garden
0: with you. <laughs> uh, you were saying that your book came out what within what twenty four hours of Dallas going into a lockdown. Is that right?
1: Yeah, it was sort of a darkly poetic uh, timing. Dallas went on lockdown at midnight Monday. March 23rd, and my book came out at 12.01 on March 24th. So, yeah, it was uh, a very strange, surreal, sad <laughs> time um, for me, because the the book felt like a really big deal to me, and then all of a sudden um, there were much bigger things going on.
0: It, it is a big deal, but I also, and I, I sense that you've seen this, too, there's a symmetry to this in some ways. This book, I as you will hear in our conversation, have really found it restorative. I've come back to it. I've read little bits of the descriptions of your garden after having read it, you know, read the whole book uh at one time and I find myself drawn back to some of those descriptions. So, I want you to Thank know you. that it's it's been meaningful.
1: Thank you so much. That That is very powerful for me. Thank you.
0: So I asked if, uh, when we planned the interview, if you could be somewhere in your house where you Mm -hmm. were within view of your garden. Tell me where you are.
1: Well, I'm sitting in my bedroom, and I actually describe this chair several times in the book as my big brown chair. You're in the big
0: brown (laughs) chair. Okay. Yes,
1: (laughs) that's where I am. So you can actually see the garden from almost every room in my house, and, uh, well, yeah, actually from every single room, because A, I designed it that way, (laughs) and B, um, the whole back of my house is sort of Glass doors all the way across and and I designed the front garden. I actually elevated it and designed it so that I could see it uh, from the front windows so but i 'm sitting now i I sent you a picture of my garden that I took on Easter Sunday. Um, I hope you got that because my irises. Look like Giverny. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> are absolutely they peaked on Easter Sunday. It was really quite beautiful, and in that way. Um, but yeah, so I can see what's left of them. We did actually have a little hailstorm last night, mm. um, but it wasn't super bad. And um, yeah, I can see I can see the the tangled vine that vibra was on, mm. um, and. Um, my peonies are just about to open, so yeah, I can see all sorts of beautiful things from where i 'm sitting.
0: I mentioned the or I read that that passage from your book where you've talked about the pinks and the blues and the lavenders there's a there's a color. I don't want to make this sound like this garden is manicured because it sounds like that's part of the beauty of it that it isn't. But there is a color theme that gives you a lot of fulfillment. Is that fair to say?
1: That is fair to say, actually. Yeah, I, I'm very much a cool color kind of girl. Um, one of the things that was actually sort of fun for me when I began designing other people's gardens was learning how to work with colors that were not my personal preference and still make them into something beautiful that I could also appreciate but yeah i'm i'm a cool color girl and so i have a lot of silvers and blues and lavenders and pinks and um and daffodils <laughs> but um that's really the only hot color in my garden is the daffodils is yellow. Yeah. yeah and also i think that just whether or not it's your favorite color palette I think it's pretty well understood that, that cool colors are more soothing than hot colors. Hot colors are enlivening, and um, that's why they're sort of fiesta colors, right? And so it 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 is both my preference, but it also expands the degree to which my garden grounds me and feels peaceful.
0: Tell, tell me how so.
1: Well, just because... Of the the nature of cool colors and the reaction that people have, it's why they paint hospital walls or they used to uh, green because it was it was healing. And so I have many shades of green. I did that very intentionally in my garden, um, and a lot of celadons. I I really like those sort of um, soft bluish. Silver greens, um, particularly.
0: That's a great description of Celadon. Yeah. mm -hmm. And that is beautiful. That, in all the different palettes of greens that you must have, that, there's something about that color to me that seems like it adds mystery Mm -hmm. to a garden, right? Because it holds a lot of different shades in it.
1: Yeah, I love that. I hadn't really thought of it as mysterious, but I like that very much. And I agree with it. You... So you'll probably see that in my next book. <laughs> All right.
0: You um I I think you've also just from the description, you've designed a garden that has that has mystery to it. It it has a character that sounds to me like there are corners of it that can't be fully known and there are corners of it that depending on the day you walk out there are going to reveal something new. There's a deliberateness, I would think, to to infusing a garden with mystery. How, how did you think about it? Well, um,
1: it's interesting that you say that because that is 100% true. And part of that was planned and part of it just evolved. So... I, I have often described my garden as the test garden <laughs> hmm. because I will buy plants that are new or new to me and just stick them somewhere and see how they do but there but there are parts of my garden that I leave wild intentionally because I have all sorts of uh, creatures that come into my garden as you know and <laughs> um, Bobcats and foxes and coyotes and, and it's not like I live out in the middle of nowhere. I don't um I am in in Dallas, but there is a creek across the street and and I invite them and so they're safe in my garden and um so i I like to leave parts of the garden available to them um, that I don't I don't need to be in all my garden. And by the way, my garden's not that big. <laughs> but it's divided and that is something that is sort of counterintuitive from a design perspective. A lot of times people think that the more open the space, the bigger it feels, yeah. but that's actually not true. Why? If you divide spaces into discrete areas that you actually have to enter and then exit, the space feels much 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 bigger. And um, so I did that. I also designed sort of um, olfactory invitations. (laughs) So I would put a plant that I knew when it flowered it would be very fragrant around a corner so that you would stand in a relatively open area and then smell something and think, what is that, and sort of follow the fragrance. (laughs) So there are all kinds of ways that I invite people to explore in
0: my garden. It's really lovely. I also hear you when you say you are experimenting and you're not afraid to put something in your garden that might not you know, be fully pleasing in the moment. You're not afraid to put that in, live with it for a bit, take it out, move it. Again, this is that sense of, a garden is a living, breathing thing and not some mm-hmm. manicured uh, picture, right, to be observed.
1: Yes. Now, I, I do have to say that that taking out part is a little challenging <laughs> for me.
0: <laughs> yes.
1: Um, but, but, I, uh, but I am very uh, courageous about just trying things out, not only in my garden, but you might have also noticed in my book.
0: <laughs> in your life yeah
1: in my life and For in my sure. book yeah i um i I don't do a lot of physical risk kind of things like you'll never find me bungee jumping, hmm. but I take a lot of um personal risks and um, emotional and spiritual kind of risks and and also horticultural risks. So, But I do that in my own garden because it's delightful. You know, I forget what's in my garden sometimes. I walked around the corner the other day, and there was a terrestrial orchid blooming. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my goodness, I forgot about you.
0: Aren't you beautiful? <laughs> wow. That you hadn't seen, that, you, that you'd forgotten about, that you hadn't seen in, in many, many months. And there's yeah. this beautiful, delicate uh, orchid just waiting to surprise you. That's great. Yeah,
1: and part of that was because uh, those pesky raccoons that you read about. Yeah, um, they completely tore up some new sod that I had laid right before winter, and I mean, tore it up in a way that <laughs> it looked like—I mean, it was comical. It was <laughs> so torn up, so you actually couldn't get back there without potentially twisting your ankle. And uh, <laughs> wow. so, yeah, those guys, are, you know, we, we need to have a conversation.
0: <laughs> you know, Rebecca, I, I've been curious about, uh, you know, having read the book and imagined myself there, whether as this social isolation has is really descended and we've felt more solitary, whether there are parts of your garden that you find yourself spending more time in because they are the parts of the garden that feel enriching at a time like this? Oh, that's an
1: interesting question. So, yes, actually, that's such an interesting question Uh, because there are parts of my garden that I specifically either designed or left To a wilder sort of nature because it feels isolating. It feels more like getting out into the woods or into the country. Mm -hmm. And you are so right. I have not been spending time in those spaces. That's so fascinating. Um, I have been very drawn to sit around the things that are blooming right now. And it is fully spring here and um, like I said, my irises are just outrageously beautiful this year. And so I do that. I also sort of have chairs all over uh, my garden because I sit in all those places. And um, my sweet olive osmanthus has been blooming, which is very fragrant. And um, so I'm sometimes there. But yeah, I have been in, in not only the more open places, but the more alive places, the places that are animated, because spring is emerging in them.
0: But, you know, as I heard you talk about the more wild places and you Mm -hmm. saying, well, I haven't really been back there, you know, those are also the kind of places that feel unpredictable. You don't know Mm -hmm. what you'll find. And boy, in a moment of so much uncertainty that we're in, that just may not be as soothing, right?
1: Oh, that was another really astute observation. Yes, that is true, Uh, especially because the way I have the seating arranged in those places, and there are um, three and a half, maybe four of them. um, My back is to the wildest part. That's the way the seating is arranged. And um, yeah, that, that feels less inviting right now. Fascinating.
0: You're listening to my conversation with landscape designer Rebecca Wynn. Her new book is titled 100 Daffodils, Finding Beauty, Grace, and Meaning When Things Fall Apart. Uh, I love this book so much. I'm sending a copy to every member of the Carrie Miller Book Circle. So it will oh, be wow. landing in your mailbox Yeah. and Thank you. Absolutely, Gosh. Rebecca. And, um, and I asked Rebecca if she would do this interview Within view of her garden, so you hear us talking a bit about what she's seeing and the different areas and surprises that await in her garden. Uh, Rebecca, one of the things that you say just on the in the very first paragraph of the book is, "This is why I come: life that is gentle, self-supporting, and beautiful." And really, this book is a is a rumination on how the garden has been uh fulfilling and supporting in some pretty difficult emotional times in your life mm-hmm. including uh i think we we open the book with you in a time when you're learning that your marriage is not is not going to continue that that the you're looking at the end of your marriage mm-hmm. so i sense that the way you're seeking you know um kind of fulfillment in the garden today is something that you have some experience with. Is that is that fair to say?
1: That is fair to say. Yeah, I I have actually experienced quite a bit of trauma in my life. Very little of which actually is is in this book, but but there is a message in nature that that I was intuitively drawn to. Um, that I I think is in our DNA as people, and that is to seek, I want to say the one place, I don't know that that's completely true, but the biggest place, the most obvious place, that is constant, that is always self-renewing, that is um, on a... Completely reliable cycle, mm, you know it's <laughs> it's less reliable in Texas than it is in some other places in the world, but um because our weather has always been a little random but 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 nature has this constancy that we can trust, and um and I think that the reason I say that it's in our DNA is because all you need to do is just read about. How you know they had to close the beaches in California because so many people were there right. that it was hard to social distance. And friends of mine that are that live in New York City, they said you know the parks were just absolutely jam packed after nine eleven. People are pulled to this place that that is is soothing and green and soft and and renewing and supporting even if they're not kind of nature types, right. you know? It's it's where we're just drawn. And and I was drawn that way, too. That was um, not because I'm a landscape designer. I It happened the other way. <laughs> you know, I was a landscape designer because that's the way I was being drawn. So, um, yeah.
0: That's a great way to put it. Uh, you're right, because I think we... We look at people on the beaches and um, out in the parks and on the trails and think, what, they don't get it? What's, But you're right. I mean, there is a pull to the endurance, the enduring quality of nature. I mean, this is why I find it very soothing and enriching to look at mountains. There is just a an endurance to that that calms something and is grounding, right? Yes. Deep yeah, within and it's me.
1: different for different people, right. which is also sort of, sort of beautiful. So for some people, it's the mountains. For some people, it's the ocean. For some people, it can be any water if they have a lake nearby. Uh, for me, it's the garden. You know, I'm not so much, you're not going to find me, you know, hiking in wilderness areas. <laughs> That's kind of not my jam, but gardens, it's always been gardens for me um, I mean I like the woods too but but they don't have a lot of flowers right. <laughs> but I always find the flowers mm. that are there
0: <laughs> uh, I want to say that you also do something with your vision that um, I guess I try to do in listening for as many times maybe as for as familiar as your garden or whatever place you're in is to you I get the sense that you you know how to sharpen your vision and look for, even if the scene is very familiar, look for the new and the fresh. And I think that's a skill. And I wonder if you have consciously developed that or this has just come because you've got great powers of observation.
1: Mm. I really think I've always been like that. I've always noticed small anomalies that are beautiful. Um, Like, I don't notice big anomalies that are upsetting. (laughs) Okay, like
0: what? What do you mean?
1: Well, you know, I don't even know that I can think of an example, but, you know, some people are bothered by the appearances of other people or how they dress or how you know I don't I don't notice
0: that <laughs> stuff at all.
1: But if there's some if there's a tiny flower growing through the gap in the stepping stones, I always notice that. And there are there are certain I hate to even use this word because it's it's got such a negative connotation. But there are these beautiful weeds in my garden that they're sort of a ground cover and they have this tiny, 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 tiny little star-shaped flower. And they're just beautiful. And the shape and form and, and gradation of color and I've always been drawn to that stuff. And so I think that I was probably um, predisposed to mindfulness. Mm -hmm. But I have said several times the last couple of weeks that the coronavirus has single-handedly made mindfulness mainstream, (laughs) (laughs) because now everybody's paying attention, right? right. Not um, necessarily to what's beautiful, and a lot of that's fear-driven, but I would really encourage people to take that new thing, if it's new for them, that new noticing, oh, everything I touch, it holds my touch for much longer than I realized. Take that mindfulness and expand it into, out of the fear realm and into the realm of, of soul nurturing, of, of feeding you and and reminding you, oh, wow, don't just walk past that beautiful, you know, flower bed, but, but notice it. Look at that. Wow. That it it it's it's amazing how that can feed you just these tiny tiny moments of noticing something precious and sacred and um I would even go so far as to say divine that they're they surround us always uh, and we we tend not to notice them so
0: you know i get the feeling um that the way you just described that that you've always been a deep observer a noticer that you know what comes along with that is a is a real sensitivity you know as a child sometimes as a child you don't know what to do with that right it just feels like Amen, maybe sister. yeah <laughs> it feels like you have maybe two fewer layers of skin than the rest of us D- does that does that resonate with you is that how it felt
1: So deeply, yeah. I cannot tell you how many times I've been told that I was too sensitive. And um, I was too sensitive to say, no, you're just not sensitive enough. (laughs) I was going to say,
0: you know what that really means when people say that, right? Don't be so sensitive.
1: It it means what?
0: Well, it means they don't know what to do with it, I think.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know what? It can be overwhelming, actually. Um, I... I, I have an experience that I call beauty overload, <laughs> oh. <laughs> where I, if I'm surrounded by something that's so intensely, intensely beautiful, and when I say beautiful, I'm not talking about like Kardashian beautiful, although clearly she is beautiful. There's no <laughs> question about that. But that's not what I'm talking about. You know, it's like this: the, there's something sort of magical about the way in which nature is beautiful, because it is uncontrived, and... Uh, so sometimes when I'm really surrounded, like at a botanical garden or something where it's just acres and acres and acres of beautiful, (laughs) um, I, I, I feel it in my body in a way that is, um, buzzy, you know, it's, it's, it, it feels like almost more than I can process how beautiful it is. And, um, and, and, I feel so many things that way. I mean, my, my ex-husband used to sort of tease me because all of my senses are kind of like that. Um, my, my sense of smell, visual, touch, you know, all of them. Taste, taste.
0: everything, huh? hmm
1: mm-hmm. so, um, so it has actually taken a lot of compensating skills to be able to not suppress those experiences, mm-hmm. but also manage them um, because... I consider it an X power. <laughs> yeah, right. A
0: superpower. Um,
1: although it didn't feel that way when I was growing up.
0: So, so the other thing I'm curious about with that is when I have an experience, and it is often a natural experience where there's too much to take in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm torn between what can I what what are the just the the kind of little vignettes that I can record in my mind, you know, not not through taking a picture, but and draw on later. And yet that seems really difficult in the midst of, you know, just a huge scale of beauty. I'm thinking about, you know, when you go to one of those just incredible gardens, I can think of I think there's one in Vancouver. Uh,
1: I've never been to that one, but I really want to go. It's the Borchard
0: Gardens. Have you never been mm-hmm. there? I oh.
1: have not, but I really want oh, to go. Oh, my gosh.
0: It, it is like strap on the seatbelt, Rebecca, because <laughs> it is. Talk about overwhelming. But, you know, um, in the moment, it's so hard to take it all in. So how do you grab on to parts of it to uh, feed you later? That's the challenge. Yeah, to preserve. Uh, yeah.
1: That's that's a fascinating um, question. I don't know that I do that or know how to do that. There will always be certain things that grab me more than others. So, as you know, my family moved to Italy when I was in first grade, and uh, we lived in Rome for four years. And so being in Rome, you're surrounded by priceless art yes, treasures yeah, everywhere. Yeah. And um, just monumental paintings and sculptures and it's everywhere, everywhere, everywhere. And yet, I have a a powerful, powerful, powerful experience, memory of the experience of standing in front of the Pieta in, in the Vatican. Mm-hmm. And why that more than any other Michelangelo sculpture or, you know, the Sistine Chapel or whatever. I don't really know why, but um, but I think those things, I think that, that when you're surrounded by beauty, certain things typically will sort of pop. Yeah. Now, how to draw on that yeah. during overwhelming times of stress or suffering um that's where I really feel like mindfulness and meditation are are really helpful because because I remember one time uh well, it was right after the evil bonbon um passed away your, and your
0: grandmother we should say yes, <laughs> <laughs> yes.
1: Um, and i uh i was in um Mexico in a cabin. It was right, right, right after she died. And I was lying on a bed and the window was open and there was a cool breeze blowing through. And it was the first moment that the stress level in my body began to seep away after months and months and months and months and months of being on high alert. Mm -hmm. And I didn't necessarily focus on that at the time as wow, this is a really valuable experience that I should draw on in the future. <laughs> but in the future, whenever I needed to bring myself to a place of calm, that was where oh, I automatically
0: went. That's really perfect. So in a
1: way, I feel like your body kind of knows. You know, it's like that's the kind of thing that, that imprints in a way that is not a thinking experience so much as a, as a sensual experience.
0: Oh, what yeah.
1: lodges in your body and then rises up to your consciousness when you need it.
0: Yeah, that that's perfect. That's a really great way to think about preserving a scene that is really enriching, that um, is fleeting in the moment of observing it, but a way to hang on to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you read the first excerpt that um, I asked about? there there were Rebecca, there were so many this doesn't happen this often to me. I usually know exactly what you know what I'd like the author to read, but I struggled with this, and um I landed on this one first. Maybe you'll tell us a little bit about uh, kind of where we are as okay yeah.
1: uh, first of all, thank you so much for saying that. I just um I don't think you could possibly know how much that means to me, but um. I'm going to buy a little time here by thanking you because I feel <laughs> a little teary. <laughs> um, so really, that, um, that means so much to me. So this piece is called I Am Autumn, and um, the I'm going to be reading the very end of this uh, essay. But what I'm talking about in the piece is how I was in a, true, what felt like my true self that had time, we are green leaves. We go about our daily routines striving for survival. We spend our days and often our nights coping, coping with work, with children, with parents, with all the responsibilities that consume our lives, trying to fit in some quality time here and there with our loved ones, and maybe, if we're lucky, with ourselves. We are bright, shiny, dizzy green leaves, doing what we must to ensure our survival until one day a crisis hits and it's impossible to continue with business as usual. In those moments, we are stripped of our ability to hide behind our busyness and are forced to be fully present with this new reality and find within ourselves the internal fortitude that previously lay dormant lovely green facade disintegrates, and all those pressing goals and demands that have consumed our time and attention day in and day out diminish and sometimes completely disappear in moments of personal cataclysm, something wiser, more resilient, more courageous wakes within us, bringing with it the necessary strength to confront our greatest challenges no matter how harsh. In those moments, we become autumn, authentic, unmasked, raw, real, powerful, and beautiful. When crisis strips away our masks and guides us inside to our authentic selves, the beauty it reveals can be staggering. When we are unmasked, we are vibrant radiant. When we are holy ourselves, it is holy. Seasons change, and so do I. And right now, I am autumn.
0: Rebecca Wynn, reading from her new book, 100 Daffodils, Finding Beauty, Grace, and Meaning When Things Fall Apart. Boy, uh, I listened to that and I thought, it is It is the perfect um, construction of words and phrases. (laughs) I just think about the way it flows, the way it, the thoughts that it brings up in succession for right now. Again, I know some of this comes out of your personal experience, but you've also hit on something that you couldn't know that we'd be going through collectively. And, uh, you know, that's wisdom that's really valuable right now.
1: Thank you. Well, I I do think that really the only value of any, any kind of memoir is that the details are mine, but the experience is universal. If there's anything I have learned about suffering, it is that no one escapes it. And the more we are able to translate the experience of our own suffering into a compassion for everyone else, knowing that we don't know how they've suffered, but we can take it to the bank that they have, then then we have found a place of connection from which I think everything can heal if we let it. So... So the timing, yeah, it's almost spooky. It is. Um, but, but the message, I always hoped that it would feel universal. I would rather it hadn't been quite so on the nose. <laughs> but, um, but but that's when it came out. So I, I, I want to believe that there's a reason for that, too.
0: Let me talk to you about the flip side of that, though, because you... You have what I think are some really wise words about joy and how we think of the pursuit of joy. And you say, um, believing joy is somewhere out there and focusing our effort and attention on trying to find it closes off joy rather than revealing it. I know this took a lot of personal reckoning uh, in your own life to understand that, but I think we are a people who maybe this is just we humans are designed in a way for the pursuit of joy, the measurement of who's where in getting that joy and less, less good for some reason at the actual experience of joy. And you've given a lot of thought to this. So so what have you understood about that?
1: Well, so I will say that having grown up overseas, I do think that it's more American than human. Um, I think that in cultures that are older, there's more of a collective unconscious wisdom. Mm -hmm. Um, Also, I think that Americans have a tendency to confuse joy with happiness. Um, And so joy is something that is, fundamentally um, deep within us. It is not something that is stimulated by anything outside of us, an item or an ambition that is achieved or a relationship. That is not ever joy. That could be happiness Mm -hmm. and excitement and good, good, happy joy, joy. (laughs) Not joy. (laughs) But, uh, But it isn't joy, not real joy. So, I feel like um, that striving piece is in the same way that it makes you charge past the beauty that surrounds you when you're out in the world. You can speed past these moments that can bring you joy. Um, I will also just say as a little bit of a sidebar that the pursuit of joy and happiness, I really think, is um, a little misguided. I think that that meaning is a much more profound thing to aspire to. Mm-hmm. And with meaning, joy, you're more open to joy. Joy just arises um, when you find meaning.
0: I, I use that word measuring, too, because... Uh, and maybe this is an American thing to do, but, you know, a lot of us feel compelled to measure where we are on the joy arc against <laughs> one another. There's a competitive, qual- I mean, isn't that what social media, isn't that really what Instagram is all about, right? This yeah. is my happy, shiny, joyful life. Now, where are you on <laughs> <laughs> on on your own uh, arc and how does it compare to mine mm-hmm. it's uh and i you're on instagram right
1: i am i'm yeah. actually really new on instagram it's facebook where i have the really big following um but i i've joined instagram because I was told when my book sold that I needed to be on Instagram. <laughs> okay, so Facebook
0: does this too, but you you know what I'm suggesting here right? I
1: do yeah it's it's actually sort of become the defining characteristic of Instagram specifically um and so i I would love to share uh, some words of wisdom that a friend of mine um, named Michael Gott said one time that really has has been. Very powerful for me, and that is that comparison is the death of joy oh. and so i've 've had people say to me, um, you know since the book came out, wow, you know i I want to write a book, but it could never be as beautifully you know whatever some lovely thing that they say, <laughs> but they frame it in a place of what you have that I don't have, and and yeah, you know, I always just want to hug them. Although you can't do that with social distancing, but and just say, you know what? Don't don't compare. You know, your voice is absolutely every bit as valuable and beautiful as as mine or anybody else's that you admire. And you will you cannot um, find. Know if 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 you are, admire someone for what they've accomplished and you see that as motivation, and that's something else. But but as soon as it feels bad and icky, then then that is that is not that is not enriching to your soul. That is soul killing. And um, so
0: yeah. What's what's uh, did I answer your question? Yeah, you did. Uh, <laughs> remind me again what your friend. Said about that. What's the exact quote?
1: Comparison is the death of joy.
0: Yeah, I'll remember that. Uh, Would you read one other excerpt? Uh, And this is where the title of the book, 100 Daffodils, comes from.
1: Yeah. Okay, so I don't think I actually explain this in this section, but. The piece goes on from the part I'm going to read to explain that um, it's attached to an experience that I had when we lived in Edinburgh. So we lived in Italy, Scotland, and England when I was little. Today, I bought a hundred daffodils. It was a radical act of self-care. It was also an affirmation, an outward demonstration of a spiritual truth I'm having trouble hanging on to right now. The truth that there is enough to go around. Enough time, enough money, enough love, enough of everything. In my particular case, I need to be reminded that there's enough love. Because right now, it feels like there's no love. None for me anyway. At least not the kind I believed I had. And in which I placed my heart and my trust. And it was so precious to me. I would have bought more daffodils today. I wanted to, but a voice inside said no. I needed to leave enough for everyone else, as if I could make a measurable dent in the global supply of daffodils by buying too many from my little grocery store. Driving home, I thought about what had stopped me from buying all the daffodils I wanted. After all, the whole purpose of the exercise was to soothe myself with the flowers I've loved since childhood. Distantly, I heard a faint echo within, admonishments not to be greedy, being scolded for wanting too much, punished for taking too much. Going deeper into those early memories of not enough, I realized they were not only pervasive, but their tone was always filled with judgment and shame. Don't take more than your fair share. What will people think? Don't be so piggy. Leave some for someone else. You don't need all those. What's everybody else supposed to do if you take them all? Jumping all the way over onto one of Bonbon's favorite taunts, you'll get as fat as your other grandma if you eat all those. After she had confusingly handed me an entire plate of fresh, warm, sweet rolls.
0: Rebecca Wynne, reading from her memoir, One Hundred Daffodils, Finding Beauty, Grace, and Meaning When Things Fall Apart. So, how many daffodils are in that garden that that you're looking at right now as we talk, Rebecca? Oh, well,
1: I'm very sorry to tell you that our daffodils bloomed in February. Oh,
0: <laughs> my gosh. Are you... S- wow. You're that far ahead of us?
1: Oh. Well, you know, we, we didn't have much of a winter this year. Um, oh, and that's the second year in a row that we've had a very disappointing winter. So, they don't usually come up in February, but they did this year. So, but... Uh, being, you know, the symbolism-driven girl that I am, I did actually plant a hundred daffodils. Did yeah, you? I did that. <laughs>
0: <laughs> That's wonderful. I thought we could close with uh, a song that I love. It's The Lumineers' "Flowers in Your Hair," and uh, and I hope you'll listen to this. And Rebecca, thank you so much. Thank you for thank this.
1: You. When we were younger, we thought everyone was on our side. Then we grew a little. And romanticize the time
0: I saw Flowers in your hair it takes a boy to live Takes a man to pretend he was there So
1: then we grew a little and knew a lot And now we demonstrated
0: it to the cops And all the things we said We were self-assured It's a long road to wisdom, but it's a short one to being ignored.
1: Be in my eyes. Be in my heart. Be in my eyes. Aye, ay, aye. Be in my heart.